Amen. We are uh, working our way through some of the minor prophets in our Sunday morning services. Uh, challenging but uh, wonderful books and scripture, and we are turning today to the book of Haggai. Uh, Haggai, and we're going to read chapter 1. It's page 948 in your pew Bibles. 948. Haggai chapter Haggai chapter 1, verse 1. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say, the time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your panelled houses, while this house remains a ruin? Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, but have harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build the house, so that I may take pleasure in it and be honoured, says the Lord. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty, because of my house, which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with his own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, and whatever the ground produces, on men and cattle, and on the labor of your hands. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai. 
because the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message of the Lord to the people. I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. They came and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. Amen. Let's stand. We have been uh, journeying our way through some of the minor prophets in the Old Testament. We have taken two weeks to look at the book of Jonah, which is the one minor prophet that most of us have a sort of working knowledge of. And then we turned our attention to the most minor of the minor prophets. Remember, they're only called minor because they are small in size, not because they are small in uh, stature or significance or importance. We came to the smallest of the Old Testament books, the book of Obadiah, and we felt the heat of God's uh, fiery fury against the Edomites. He burned with anger because of the way that they treated his children and their own relatives, the way that they treated the Israelites as Babylon attacked uh, Judah and conquered Jerusalem. The Edomites hid up in the hills, applauding and supporting the Babylonians in any way that they could. And Obadiah is written as a response to what the Edomites did to God's children, to the Israelites. So God's people were uh, killed or ta taken captive by this great empire of Babylon, Babylon and uh, they lived their lives in that empire from 587 BC to 539 BC. In 539 BC, the empire of Babylon itself was conquered by the Medes and the Persians. And therein lies a lesson for us. Every empire ends and every kingdom falls eventually, no matter how great and how glorious they may seem at the time, no matter how strong, how big, no matter how invincible it seems that they are, every empire ends and every kingdom falls eventually, except one, except for the kingdom of God. It will last forever. King Jesus will never be taken off his throne, and so the kingdom of God will never crumble, it will never fall, it will never end. So if you're looking for a great cause, a great kingdom to give yourself to, to belong to, to believe in, to fight for, then go for that kingdom because Jesus will never be dethroned. So 539 BC, the Medes and the Persians conquer Babylon. And then in 538 BC, remember 
BC, the number gets smaller as time moves on. You're heading towards the zero, not away from the zero. So one year later, after the Medes and the Persians conquer Babylon, one year later, the king of Persia does something remarkable, something amazing. He is moved by God, not his God, not the God of, of Persia. He is moved by the true and living God, by the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to let God's people go, to let God's people return, if they want, back to Judah, back to Jerusalem, to rebuild their temple and to rebuild their lives in that land. You can read about that in Ezra or in Second Chronicles. He actually goes even further than that. He encourages his own people to give gifts to the Israelites so that they are able to get home safely and to rebuild their temple. So Ezra, the historical book that kind of runs alongside Haggai and Zechariah, opens with these words. Ezra chapter 1 verse 1 says, In the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, the Lord fulfilled Jeremiah's prophecy by stirring the heart of Cyrus to put this proclamation into writing and send it throughout his kingdom. This is what King Cyrus of Persia says, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. He has appointed me to build him a temple at Jerusalem in the land of Judah. All of you who are his people may return to Jerusalem and Judah to rebuild this temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, who lives in Jerusalem. And may your God be with you. Imagine some foreign army had invaded Airdrie uh, in 1967, 50 years ago, and they had conquered Airdrie, they had uh, razed the town to the ground, set fire to buildings, killed many of the residents of this town, and taken the rest of those residents uh, captive as, as slaves to their own land. This is 50 years ago, and Airdrie has lain waste for those 50 years. Nature has been allowed to reclaim the land. One or two unsavory uh, people have moved into the land that used to be known as Airdrie. It's been 50 long years. If you are old enough to remember 1967, then you will have sung songs and told stories of your homeland of Airdrie while you're out in this foreign land, and you will have assumed that you will live the rest of your life and die in this land out there. If you are under 50, then you were born in this land out there. And that's the language that you speak. It's the land that you know. It's familiar. It's comfortable. You've heard the stories. You've listened to the songs of Airdrie but you've never been there. And you've always assumed that you would never have the opportunity to go back to Airdrie. And now all of a sudden, the king has changed. He has issued this decree and you have this opportunity to return 
to Airdrie and to begin to rebuild. What do you do? Do you leave your life in Babylon behind? Do you uproot your family and head back to this wilderness that used to be home? Or do you stay in the relative comfort and security of Babylon? Babylon is a great city. It's the most modern uh, and sophisticated city in the world. Do you leave it behind to head back to Judah and to rebuild Jerusalem? Well, some didn't. Many didn't. Many stayed in Babylon. But 50,000 people decided to go, to return, to head back to Judah, to rebuild Jerusalem, and to embark upon this great and glorious adventure for God. 50,000 people found when they got back to Judah, back to Jerusalem, that some people had moved into the territory and they were not very welcoming. But they still managed to get off to a good start. In Ezra chapter 3, we find that they discover the old temple grounds, and the first thing that they do is to build an altar to the Lord, and they sacrifice, and they honor, and they worship the Lord day and night. This is Ezra chapter 3, verse 3. Even though the people were afraid of the local residents, they rebuilt the altar at its old site. Then they immediately began to sacrifice burnt offerings on the altar to the Lord. They did this each morning and evening. And then once they've done that, they begin to rebuild the temple itself. They lay the foundations of this new temple to the Lord. Verse 10 of Ezra 3, when the builders completed the foundation of the Lord's temple, the priests put on their robes and took their places to blow their trumpets. Imagine that moment. They've waited so long. And here it is. The priests put on their robes and took their places to blow their trumpets. And the Levites, descendants of Asaph, clashed their cymbals to praise the Lord, just as King David had prescribed. With praise and thanks, they sang this song to the Lord. He is so good. His faithful love for Israel endures forever. Then all the people gave a great shout, praising the Lord, because the foundation of the Lord's temple had been laid. It's all going so well. They've got back home. They've praised the Lord. They built their altar. And now the foundation is down for the temple. They're singing songs of praise. This is a scene of great joy. But then the very next verse says this. Many of the older priests, Levites, and other leaders remembered the first temple. And they wept aloud when they saw the new temple's foundation. The others, however, were shouting for joy. The joyful shouting and weeping mingled together in a loud commotion that could be heard far in the distance. So here's the first 
hint that all is not well, the first sign of discouragement, the older uh, people who had lived in Jerusalem before Babylon came and conquered, the older people who had seen Solomon's temple in all of its greatness and all of its glory, now looked at the foundations for the new temple and it looked so small in comparison. So they wept for the good old days, for the glory days, as the younger ones who had never seen Solomon's temple rejoiced in what God was doing today, as it were. So there is discouragement from within amongst the older members, but it's not long before the younger Jews are also discouraged. The people around them, Ezra 4, verse 4, people around them set out to discourage the people of Judah and to make them afraid to go on building. Always the way when it comes to the work of the Lord, there are people who will seek to discourage, to make God's people fearful at serving the Lord. And God's people do get frightened, and the work on the temple comes to a standstill for 16 years. 16 years. No work done on the rebuilding of the temple. 16 years, and then in steps Haggai with a word from the Lord, get back to building my temple. We know nothing about Haggai. We don't know uh, where he is from originally. We don't know his family, his ancestry, his background. We know nothing, but it sounds like he was there to see the original temple, to see Solomon's temple. Most commentators think that that lies behind uh, what he says in chapter 2. Who of you, he says, is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? So it sounds as though Haggai were there, was there all those years ago, what, 66 years earlier. If that's the case, then he's an old man. He's in his 70s at least maybe his 80s, maybe his 90s. This is before the NHS, uh, before hip replacements and hearing aids and all of these uh, procedures and gadgets and gizmos. And yet this is the man that God chooses. This is the man that God uses to steer his people back in the right direction. Even if Haggai wasn't there, he certainly addresses those who were. He addresses the people old enough to remember the original temple, and he urges them to get back to work. So maybe you are in your 70s or your 80s. I don't think anyone here is in their 90s. If you are, you're, you're looking good. Uh, whatever age you are, you are not too old for God to use you. We sang just a few moments ago, I want to serve the purpose of God in my generation. That's not just for the young ones who sit down the front. That is for all of us. I hope. I hope all of us, irrespective of our age, can sing that song. We want to serve the Lord. We want to play our part in what He is doing today, no matter what age we are. Could well be that our greatest work for God is still to come. It could well be that our greatest work for God is just round the corner. 
You may feel a shadow of your former self. You may not be able to serve the Lord in the way that you once did. You may have to change the way that you serve the Lord. You may have to step down from certain things. The pattern of your life may have to alter. That's all okay. You may retire from certain uh, groups or certain tasks, but you don't retire from service. You may feel a shadow of your former self, but it is in our weakness that God is so often pleased to show His strength. Maybe you have struggles that you never had as a younger man or woman, like the Apostle Paul. He was given a thorn in the flesh, and three times he asked the Lord to take it away. But he says, the Lord said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, says Paul, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties, for when I am weak, then I am strong. I wonder if you are ready to be used, looking to be used, eager to play your part, to run your race well, right to the tape, right to the line for the Lord. Sixteen years, the temple foundations have been laid, but sixteen years and no work done. In steps old Haggai with a message from the Lord his God to the people of the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say the time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in paneled houses? Well, this house remains a ruin. They were tending to their own houses, uh, building, mending, repairing, fixing up, building their own houses, but ignoring the house of God. The time has not yet come. Well, as far as the Lord was concerned, the time had come 16 years ago, and he had heard enough excuses. First things first. We can all do it. The time has not yet come. I will serve God. I will give my life to Christ and to the cause of Christ, but the time has not yet come. I will serve God. I will give my life to this great cause. But firstly, I need to have my education sorted. I need to get good grades. That's reasonable, is it not? Or once I have my career in place, once I've got my dream job, then I'll start serving the Lord fully. Once I get my family situation sorted, when this happens, when that happens, not now, not today. The time has not yet come. Well, the time had come, and God sent Haggai to tell his people to get back to work on his house, on the temple. 
And maybe through Haggai this morning, the Lord is telling one or, one or two of us that the time has come. No more excuses. You know what you need to do, and the time has come to do it. We could all find excuses to put off what we know we ought to do today. I'll get round to it. Maybe one day I'll be good enough, but I'm not quite there yet. You've heard at least one version of what I'm about to read. I remember Edwin reading this. There are a few versions in circulation. Excuses, excuses. Abraham was too old. Jacob was a liar. Moses had a stutter. Gideon was afraid. Rahab was a prostitute. Jeremiah was depressed. David was an adulterer and a murderer. Isaiah preached naked. That's true. Once. Jonah ran from God. Naomi was a widow. Job went bankrupt. Peter denied Christ three times. Martha worried about things that didn't really matter. The Samaritan woman was divorced. Mary Magdalene was demon-possessed. Zacchaeus was a very little man, and a very little man was he. Timothy had a stomach problem. Paul was a persecutor of the church, and through that, a persecutor of Christ. Oh, it says at the end, and Lazarus was dead. But they encountered Christ, all of them. And they received the grace that Christ gave to them. And they found that, Christ, that grace to be more than sufficient for God to use them. And if you or I have been hiding behind excuses, we need to know that His grace is sufficient for us to step out in His name, to step out, to stand up, and to serve. And it's not just... To serve it is to put Christ and Christ's kingdom above everything else in our lives. To use all that God has given to us for Christ and for the kingdom of Christ and for the cause of Christ because He is worth it and because life will not be the way that it should be until we do. That was the case for those who had returned to Judah, wasn't it? For those 16 years, they'd been building their own houses and working hard on their own land. But life was never quite the way that it should have been. They eat but feel unsatisfied. They earn but the money just seems to disappear. They plant much but harvest little because the Lord was unwilling to let them experience real joy and deep fulfillment and peace until they made the first things first, until they put Him at number one in their lives, until they got their priorities sorted out. The Lord must come first. And once they got their priorities sorted out, then the Lord bless them, and they experienced that fullness of life that they had been working so hard to find, but never able to obtain. We don't have a temple, of course, because the temple sacrifices only ever pointed forward to that one sacrifice that really counted. The temple sacrifices only ever really pointed forward to the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. The temple sacrifices were like IOU notes, that Jesus paid off 
when he died for our sin on the cross. So we don't have temples anymore uh, because that one true sacrifice was and is sufficient. All who trust him become the dwelling place of God. The perfect sacrifice of Jesus on the cross is enough to bring us into the presence of God, but even more than that, to, to allow God to dwell in us, to dwell in His people by His Spirit. We are, in a sense, the living temple of God. We are the place of His presence in this world, not this building, but this people. We are the place in, that God is pleased to dwell in. Buildings may have their part to play, but it's so much bigger than that. How has God gifted you to build the dwelling place of God in this generation? How has God gifted you to bless and to build up the church of Christ? How has God gifted you? What has God given to you to enable you to serve, to play your part in the unfolding of this great and glorious story, this great and glorious adventure. What has he given to you? And how is it going? How is it going? Four times in this book, the Lord says to his people, give careful thought four times. So, give careful thought to your journey with Jesus this morning. Give careful thought to how the Lord has gifted you, to what the Lord has given to you, so that you can serve, so that you can build and bless the church of Christ and the cause of Christ. Is it going well or are you hiding behind excuses like the people of God were all those years ago in Judah? Don't you realize that all of you together are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God lives in you? Most of the time, underlying our excuses is some kind of fear, maybe fear of failure or fear of being hurt. And so the Lord gives to his people two great promises through his prophet Haggai to remind them of who they are and of whose they are. Firstly, God says to them in chapter 2, verse 4, But now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work. And why are they to be strong and to work? For I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. The Lord is their Lord. He is with them 
and he is for them, so they need not fear as they serve him. And in Christ, the Lord is with us. In Christ, the Lord is within us. In Christ, the Lord is for us forever. There is nothing that will be strong enough in this world, nothing that will be strong enough in all of eternity to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so we need not fear. We have all that we need to step out, to stand up, to serve, to play our part in the unfolding of this wonderful story of God. He gives one more promise, though, one more promise in verse 9. He says, the glory of this present house. Remember, they've been discouraged because the, the foundations of the temple look really small. He reminds them, it's not about the, the building. It's not about how big the building is. It's about my presence. It's about the, the, the glory of my presence resting in the midst of my people. He says in verse 9, the glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house. And in this place, I will grant peace declares the Lord. The building may not be as impressive as Solomon's temple, but it was never about the beauty of the building. It was always about the beauty and the presence of the God who is glorious and the God who is pleased to dwell with his people. So let's make that our prayer for our church, that the Lord would be pleased to make this place, better to say that the Lord would be pleased to make this people a place, a people in which His glory is revealed and celebrated, and a people who know His peace, and a people who are able and ready and eager to lead others to find that peace, that perfect peace, that shalom, shalom, that only the Lord Jesus Christ can give. Let's bow our heads in the Lord's presence as we pray together.